All right, let's get started. Uh, why don't we start in the Bible today? We always like to start in the Bible. It's a good place to start. Turn to the book of Acts in your Bibles. If you brought your Bible, congratulations. You're cool. But if you didn't bring your Bible, then uh, on your table is a Bible that you could use. In fact, if you're new around here, you know, or if you're, if you're old around here, you know that you could take home those Bibles and keep them because we just like to give out free Bibles and free food, you know. Kind of goes hand in hand. <laughs> Sorry, Acts 17, verse, uh, let's, let's start in verse 16. This is a very famous passage. It's Paul, the apostle. Um, he goes to the city of Athens, the ancient Greek city, the capital of Greece, the capital of uh, knowledge and philosophies. It was where, uh, wasn't Plato from there and like Aristotle from there and uh, Socrates from there? And so those were ancient in history, but Paul goes around something uh, 0 A.D. No, Paul would be, let's, let's just say 50 A.D. or something like that, to Athens. And this is the story of him going into this famous city. Verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Has anyone been on a mission trip or been to a place where uh, you look around and there's lots of idols and people are worshiping things that are not of God, the creator, God of this world. It's, it's, it's kind of disheartening. Uh, out of all places in the world, I went to Guatemala on a mission trip when I was in college. And in Guatemala, there was this like weird Catholic church. Not all, not all Catholic churches are like this by any means. But this weird little Catholic church had all these little shrines of all these little saints in Guatemala City. Had like the, the Virgin Mary and the, the I guess there's a, Guadalupe, the mother of Guadalupe. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And all these saints and these people are walking by and like kissing the saints and putting little necklaces on them and giving money to these saints as they were walking around. That's idol worship. It's not good. So Paul was probably disheartened. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who would happen to be there. He was an evangelist, a street evangelist. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Maybe that's what you're thinking to yourself right now as I'm speaking. <laughs> Just kidding. What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then uh, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. What's that Greek word there mean? Does anybody know? It means the mountain or the hill of Ares. And another word for Ares, that, that Roman or Greek god, is Mars. So this is Mars Hill. Have you ever heard of churches called Mars Hill or uh, just things called Mars Hill? This, this is what this is. Another Other translations say Mars Hill. So they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. They had never heard of Jesus. We want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They were the people that hung out in Starbucks all day, all week, just ch chatting with like whoever would chat with them. That's who they were. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you are probably those people. Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. He compliments them. Do you see that? He says, You're religious in every way. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, 
I am going to proclaim to you. It's a pretty cool thing, don't you think? He sees this altar that says, to an unknown God. And Paul walks in and says, here's something, here's this tomb to an unknown God. Let me tell you about who this tomb is for. It's about the God of the Bible. It's about the God that created. It's about the only one and true God. His name is Jesus. Verse 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, he kind of makes it relevant to them. He says, one of your poets has said, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. He's nice to them, he compliments them, but he also cuts to what they need to hear. Listen to this. But he commands that all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proofs to all this, to all men, by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. When, he heard about the resurrection of the, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of, followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Let's pray. God, we want to be like Paul in this passage, a man that is, that is relevant to the culture that he is proclaiming your good news to. God, would you put it on our hearts to be relevant, to be people that have a burden and a desire to let other people know about who you are, why you came to this earth. God, give us a burden for those that are lost, for those that don't know you, that we might go and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ in our culture, in our work, in our schools, in the places that we know, the places that we hang out. God, we just ask you for those opportunities. We love you. We thank you. We honor you, Jesus. And everyone screamed, Amen. Amen. All right, everybody. Well, welcome. If you're here for the first time-ish, if you're new-ish to the Mill Sunday School, you're not alone. As I met some of you this morning, there's lots of you that say, this is my first time. I've only been coming for a little while. So don't be afraid to make little buddies here at the Mill Sunday School. Don't be afraid to say, do you want to sit together in church afterwards and then go over to section 11 together? Don't be afraid to say, hey, do you want to get together and have lunch? A bunch of us are going here or there. Little buddies are to be had, don't you think? Your friends are in this room. It's the Mill Sunday School. Um, let's turn in our skillets. This is called a skillet. It's called a Sunday school millet. In here, I provide some space for you to write down notes. Look at the section, why church history is important. Today, ladies and gentlemen, is the 1st of July. As many of you know, every month is a new topic. New month, new topic. Last month, we talked about parables. That was good times. This month, church history. The last church history that will, will bring it all the way up to today. Church history, United States style, 2007. It'll bring us all the way up to current times. All right. I have here a little surprise. It's a Starbucks gift certificate for the first person 
that could stand up, raise your hand, stand up, and point out on the skillet where a little mermaid is located. She's pointed down and looks down. You already got it? Shut up. Where is it at? Yes, between church and history. Why did you find it so quickly? Does everyone see that? It's just like a little smear. This is a Starbucks gift certificate for you. I just thought I would do that for fun. Give her a big hand for finding it. <laughs> it's like she was ready. Like she had already been... She's like one of those people that just looks at things and counts them. And Anyways. <laughs> do you see it? Do you see what I'm talking about? It was just fun. That has nothing to do with today. Um, how many... Let me ask you a question. How many of you were here in the Mill Sunday School uh, when we used to meet in Pikes Peak Community College across the street? Wow. Wow, not that many. I guess quite a few. Okay. I was expecting like three because <laughs> it was a long time ago. The Mill Sunday School started in the summer of 2004, three years ago, in uh, Pikes Peak Community College. And it was my dream when I became on staff here at, with the Mill. I'm an associate pastor with the Mill. It was my dream for the Sunday School to be a place where we can go deeper and, and just dive into deepness and theological stuff, church history stuff, and just go deeper in knowledge, further deeper than uh, like your average sermon on a weekly basis would go. Further, more deeper. I don't know if that's a word, but it is to me. And so that's always been my dream. And when we started the Mill Sunday School over there in Pikes Peak Community College three years ago, uh, I think we started with like 15 people, and now it's grown a lot, but it still holds to the same principles of getting down into the knowledge of God, whether that be Bible or church history or uh, various topics. Um, and one of the topics that we began with in 2004, three years ago, was church history. We started three years ago with uh, talking about church history. We started with the Old Testament, and we got into the first, uh, like the first century church, the early church. And every about four or five months, the topic will recome along and we'll do church history again. And so in the last four years... It's been, this is probably like the 12th month that we've done church history on, and it's going to bring us right up to the present. Isn't that fun? So if you've been here, since some of you raised your hands, if you've been here, you just got a whole class in the entire history of church. You should, you should be like screaming in excitement. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me give you some reasons why church history is so important. If you're taking down notes, uh, write down the number one, and then under that, the number two. I'm going to give you two reasons as to why church history is so important. Under number one, put, uh, put our family history. Number one is our family history. Well, these will obviously need lots of explanation. Number one, family history. And number two, church history is important because the church uh, didn't form in a bubble. Number one, it's our family history. And number two, church history did not form in a bubble. These will obviously need lots of explanation because you're looking at them with, like you have lobsters coming out of your ears. Number one, family history. Church history is important because um, it's our family history as Christians. You know, a lot of what you look like is because of what your parents looked like. 
if you're tall or if you're short or if you have black hair or blonde hair or blue eyes or green eyes or the color of your skin is really dependent upon your parents. The same way, this analogy that I'm going to use is kind of the same for church history. A lot of what we look like as a church is based off of our church history, the people that have gone before us. And then we've done, um, to look at it kind of in a negative light, because there's the positive and the negative side of church history. There's some shady deals in the past that we've had as Christians and as believers in the past. There's been some bad times. Um, But if you go to get life insurance for your your physical body, um, you know that all of us are going to, we're all going to die, right? And so life insurance is like pretty good, right? (laughs) I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, this is a win-win situation. Just kidding. Um, uh, when you, uh, let me explain. When you go to get life insurance, there's all these check boxes as far as your family history. And if your family has diabetes, if your family has uh, heart, heart diseases in their history, how old your parents are when they died, um, all these questions. It's kind of morbid, I know. But all these questions uh, you have to fill out in your life insurance because that determines how much you're going to have to pay for life insurance. Because if your parents had all these diseases, you know what? Sadly, you're probably going to have the same diseases. And sure, there's some things we can do. We can uh, work out and eat healthily and, and change the future a little bit. But if there's lots of diseases in your family history, then that's just kind of that's just kind of the way it is. Bad deal. The same goes for church history. There's been a lot of bad deals in our church history, like the Crusades and the persecutions and just bad stuff. And it seems like to me that throughout history, throughout church history, the last 2,000 years, some of these things kind of repeat themselves. And so we could look back in church history and say, oh, the Crusades, that was horrible when we came down and killed men, women, and children in order to take the city of Jerusalem, which we didn't even get. That was a bad day. But those things kind of repeat themselves. And it's, it would be um, proud of us, like proud in a bad way, to look back and say, oh, that'll never happen again. Because it probably will. There's cycles. It's our church history. It's in our history, um, some of these bad things. And so we need to learn from them so they don't have to happen again. We can learn from them and know that, like in our physical bodies, if we're susceptible to diabetes, that means we can't go eat the donuts like crazy like everybody else because we might develop diabetes when we're older. There's things we could do to avoid that. Is that a weird analogy? It probably is. (laughs) Um, And... And furthermore, uh, our church history, as we, as we look back, they're, they're obviously not our blood relatives. Um, maybe some of them aren't. But we can, in our own physical life, we can, however we were raised, whether we were raised by our bio, biological parents or whether we were raised by guardians or step-parents or whoever we were raised from, a lot of what they believed about faith, about marriage, about holidays, about what's good and what's bad, a lot of that just comes and pours into your life and you look back and you say, well, this is what I think about marriage because my mom and dad did it like this. This is what I think about how we should celebrate Christmas because our parents celebrated it like this. And so a lot of, this is going to sound like a bold statement, but a lot of what we do in church may not be directly from the Bible. A lot of what we do in church may come more from church history. Some of what we believe comes not directly from the Bible but from church history. I'll explain that. It's a pretty bold statement, and so I will explain that. Um, Let's move to the second one first. Number two, the church didn't form in a bubble. Do you like my handwriting? That's pretty good, huh? 
The church didn't form in a bubble. There's this really rare disease out there that uh, some people are born with that uh, they don't have an immune system. And so if you don't have an immune system, if you get like just a cold, you have no way of fighting that. And so what has to happen to you? I'm, I'm just laughing because Seinfeld made fun of a... a there's a Seinfeld episode about everything in life, but there's a Seinfeld episode where George meets this bubble boy, and he, he lives in a bubble because he has that disease, um, and uh, he plays like Trivial Pursuit, and then they get into an argument, so he, they fight each other through this bubble and end up popping it. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But I think some, some Christians have, have a perception of church history that once you become a Christian you enter into this bubble of church la-la land, right? And so throughout history, throughout our 2,000 years of church history, there's the bad perception that all these Christians, all these people get saved and enter into this little bubble world. And then once they're in this bubble world, church history is looking into this bubble and seeing the events that took, took place and happened in church history. Like we as Christians were somehow separated from the world and somehow in this little random bubble. That's totally not true. There's no such thing as a bubble around church history. Church history has a lot of assimilation with the culture around it. When the, when the culture was going through good times in these last 2,000 years, the church was probably going through a good time. When the, when the culture was going through a bad time, the church was probably going through a bad time. The church, there's a lot of assimilation. Let me prove it to you. Have you ever heard of the holiday called Christmas? Some of you are thinking, man, it'd be sweet if it was Christmas. No, it's July 4th. July 4th is better than Christmas. Anybody agree? Just kidding. Um, I kind of like July. I just like picnicking in summertime. It's kind of cool. I, I do like Christmas as well. I'm not like a Grinch. But let me give you some assimilating things. Sometimes Christians uh, get accused of, especially when it comes to holidays, um, get accused of taking pagan rituals and making them Christian. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Um, Christmas, and I love Christmas, don't get the wrong idea, uh, I'm not a Grinch, that's the second time I said that, um, the Christmas tree, you know where we get that from? I mean, today, if we bring a Christmas tree in our house, it's like an evergreen tree, and we're just like, oh, it's just a symbol of, of life, and it smells like Christmas, and it's nice, but that, that tradition of bringing a tree into your house comes from a German tradition, and the ancient German medieval tradition comes from pagans bringing trees into their house to worship them because the little g gods of the forest needed to be worshipped and uh, you need to bring trees in your house to respect them. And that's kind of where we got the idea of bringing Christmas trees in our house. Kind of paganish, don't you think? What about the very day that we celebrate Christmas? Was Jesus really born on December 25th? Probably not. I mean, out of all the days. And think about it this way. If he was, it would be like Easter. You know how Easter's on a different day every year? And you're like, when the heck is Easter? I don't know. And no one really knows. You have to look at the calendar. If the Christmas would be the same way because it's part of the Jewish calendar. But no, the Romans, when they became Christian, when the Roman kingdom became Christian, they took December 25th. That was an ancient pagan holiday, a big celebration day for the pagan goddess. And, and they took that and said... Let's, let's take out the pagan goddess part and put in Jesus and the story of his birth in the place of that day. Sounds kind of paganish, don't you think? What about, um, oh, this one will get you. What about the, the mere fact that we're here on Sunday? It's called Sunday school, right? You know why? Because we meet on Sundays. But do you know why we meet on Sunday? 
You know, if the first Christians, the first Christians were Jewish, right? Jesus was Jewish as far as his upbringing, as far as his, uh, where he came from. Um, Jesus was Jewish. And so the Jews, what day did they celebrate? Yeah, Saturday, the Sabbath, Saturday. And so the early church celebrated on Saturday. And it wasn't until the Roman Empire kind of took over and said, we worship the sun god, Caesar, the emperor, on Sunday. That's why it's called Sunday, not because it's usually Sunday, sunny on Sundays. It's because the Romans used to worship the sun god on Sunday. And they said, well, let's just take, uh, let's still worship on Sunday, but take out the pagan stuff and put in Christian stuff. Kind of weird, don't you think? Is that surprising to you? It's, it's, it might be a little discouraging, but let me encourage you by that. Here's, here's the quote. On the back of your skillet, there's a quote by Benjamin Franklin. This should encourage you. It says, in areas of method, flow like a river. That means constantly change your methods to be better and better and more relevant. In areas of doctrine, stand like a rock. So in areas of method, like what day we worship on, worship, uh, celebrate Christmas, uh, what day we worship as far as calling it the Lord's Day. Those are areas of method. That doesn't have to stand. That doesn't talk about our, our doctrine, right? There's a difference between the method and doctrine. In areas of method, it's okay to flow. It's okay to be relevant. But in areas of doctrine, we need to stand like a rock. Do you see the difference? And I would argue that the day that we celebrate Christmas, uh, the fact that we bring Christmas trees into our house because they smell nice and they represent uh, evergreenness, um, <laughs> is, is just an area of method. If you were worshiping the Christmas tree, that's an area of doctrine that probably needs to be changed. You don't bow down to the Christmas tree, right? Right? Okay, just making sure. Um, I was talking to uh, this person that works for a small business, and they were saying how uh, they need more customers at the business, and the, the owner of the business is an older dude, and he, he wants more customers, but he refuses to get a website for their business. And I just thought, how are they going to get new customers if they don't even have a website? Who uses a Yellow Pages anymore? None of you. I don't see any hands. No one uses a, web, a Yellow Page. You get them at your door, and you just throw them out because you know that on the Internet, there's, a, there's a, like Yahoo Yellow Pages and Google searches. You just type it in, hit Enter. It'll give you a map. It'll give you a phone number. It'll give you a link to their website. And so we, just like that business needs to be relevant, they could get lots of more customers if they had a sweet website. Just like as Christians, we could get a lot more converts if we're relevant. And so maybe, I'm just throwing this out here, but maybe the whole idea behind, uh, some of you were, gave me weird looks when I said that we worship on Sundays because the pagans used to worship a sun god. But maybe that was a good thing, a good decision at the time. If people are already worshiping on Sunday, then maybe it's just an easier step for them to say, okay, I really do want to worship Jesus, but my whole life and schedule falls around um, having Sunday off. Maybe uh, it's just easier if we worship on Sunday. I think it's part of being relevant. I think it's okay. You're not worshiping the sun gods. You're worshiping on the same day. I mean, there's only seven days per week anyways, right? Yeah, so how about that? Um, sometimes the mill, th this is still part of, the church didn't form in a bubble because um, sometimes the mill gets accused of, of just putting on a big show. And uh, the, this young man came to the mill a little while. It was probably a year ago. He filled out the first-time visitor form 
Uh, and we email, if you're new to the mill and you fill out the little first-time visitor form, put your email, give us our email. We're, we'll email you and say, hey, thanks for coming to the mill. We'll actually personalize it. and say, It's, it's kind of cool. Our interns do that for us. And they say, you know, they, they write the person a little note. They look at their name, and, so, and, the, and the parentheses is the spot, like, what do you like most about the mill? I think this guy put, I like uh, the sermon a lot. But we emailed him, said, welcome to the mill. But he emailed back and said, I don't think I'm going to become a member of the mill because I think... And he, and he was a Christian. And he said it kind of lovingly, kind of, uh, kind of not. But uh, he said the mill is just a big show. There's all this money spent, all these lights, um, all the coffee that you guys give out. It's all just a big show. It's all just um, propaganda for your meetings. Because and he said, I come from a Lutheran background, more traditional Lutheran background. And, and so his point was that the mill is just too showy. And as a staff member, as the mill, I was kind of sad. And I was like, man, can't really can't connect with that guy. It's okay, though. I mean, he has a church. He has a Lutheran church. And I think we need to respect that he is more comfortable worshiping in a more traditional setting. But in the mill's defense, there's reasons why we have the lights kind of down low. There's reasons why the music is, and the, then the, the, is loud and there's lights and it looks like a concert. Because our culture goes to concerts. That's how we connect. I mean, if you go to a U2 concert, it's almost like a spiritual connection with uh, just the songs and the lights. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm not being crazy, right? And, and so, uh, and people connect over coffee. If you want to get together with somebody, what do you do? You go out to Starbucks. And so we bring that to the mill, and we give out Starbucks coffee so that people can connect with the mill. And so I think it's a part of being relevant to our culture. And throughout church history, ladies and gentlemen, the church has to become more relevant to win more souls. And I think we've been doing that since day one. I think we've been, we're doing that when the Roman Empire took on Christianity, I think we were doing that in the Middle Ages. I think we were doing that in the Protestant Reformation. And so, and I think we need to continue doing that today. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about post-modernity. You know what that word means? You'll find out. But first, a big church history review. Do you see that on your notes? So we're past, why is church history important? Now we're at a huge review of church history. Does that sound like fun? It sounds like a lot of fun to me because unless you go to college, like a Christian college, unless you go and then you maybe even have to major in Bible or maybe even have to major in church history to get what I'm about to share with you. And I've taught um, some of you know I'm working on my doctorate. And so I've had opportunities with my master's degree to teach college level courses. And I taught a college level course on early church history. Then I taught a college level course on uh, the right after that, the medieval and Reformation church history. So what I'm about to give you, this information is gold. You got up, you got up early on a Sunday morning, and so I'm returning the favor and giving you pure gold. Figuratively, of course. All right, so you're going to take a lot of notes here. Um, and I, 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 I highly suggest taking notes. I like taking notes. Even if you just write it down for the mere fact of writing it down, and then on your way out, throw the skillet in the trash, I think you get more out of just, just writing than if you're just there listening. So I encourage you to write it down. Um, I don't encourage you to just throw out the skillet as you leave, but um, the point is all the same. It's to get it in your head and in your heart so that you can know more about God and his knowledge, his holiness, because there's something to be learned from church history. So I'm going to erase this, and then I'm going to give you 11 points, 11 movements of church history. And I promise to do this within the next 20 minutes. So it's the whole entire review of all of church history from the birth to the, uh, 0 AD-ish 
went right before Jesus came up until 2007. It's pure gold. Are you ready for this? I won't give it to you unless you're ready. You've got to be ready. <laughs> All right, so write down. Uh, you're going to write down tons of things. Uh, I'm going to give you 11 points. Number one, uh, let's make that bigger so you can actually see it. OT. What's OT stand for? Old Testament. Is the Old Testament important in understanding why Jesus had to come? Of course it is. It's very important because the first Christians, well, they were all Jewish. There's this passage in the book of Acts that says in Antioch, uh, the, the believers were first called Christians there. You know what they were called before that? Jews. They were called either just followers of the way, this Jewish, Jewish sect, or they were just called uh, Jews. They were all Jewish people. And so the Old Testament, this age that happened right before Jesus came, is extremely valuable. And just thinking about how did this Jewish understanding of God, how did this way of, of coming closer to God affect what Jesus had to say? I think that's all. I mean, we're, we're going to kind of fly through these. Um, and so, number one, Old Testament. Let's get into the church. Number two, first church. First church. The first church is uh, the, the early church. And this is the period, if you read the book of Acts, this is the first church. This is the church that first forms after Jesus dies and then resurrected and then uh, ascends into heaven. This is the first church that met in Jerusalem and then spread out from there all over the Mediterranean Sea, all over uh, what was the Roman Empire. They spread out all over the place. And um, I, ha I kind of have a pet peeve. You know what that is? That's when you're annoyed like overly on something you shouldn't be that annoyed with. But I have this pet peeve with people um, that, that say, oh, if we could just get back to the early church time period in the way we do things, then everything would be good and perfect. And there's, there's people that say that. There's whole denominations. There's even cults that, that say that. If we could just get back to this early church period, everything would be good and cool and the way God intends that. And I, it's not like I get mad and punch them in the face. It's, it's just that I have a, a pet peeve with that because I believe if you actually read the book of Acts, was everything good and perfect, or was there a lot of problems? There was a whole lot of problems. Read the book of Galatians, if you don't believe me. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you remember that passage in there? Or read Corinthians, first and second. Someone, uh, it, it's a little graphic, but someone, uh, a, a, a guy is, wants to marry his stepmother or something weird like that, and Paul rebukes them harshly. You can't do this. As the church, you've got to put an end to this. There was obviously problems in the first church. But the first church is our, is our starting point, kind of our foundation of church history. And so do you see my point as, as to why I don't like people? Because a lot of people say that. Oh, if we could just get back to the early church history. No, they, they had the problems of their own. We have problems of our own, you know, at churches today in America in 2007. But it's not like this first church was totally perfect. It had its own problems. Number two, see how we're flying through this, by the way? It's, it's so fun. Number three. Uh, the persecuted church. Persecute. Persecuted church. Have it, has any of, any of you seen the movie The Gladiator? Of course you have. Who's, who, who's is his favorite movie? One of the top ten. Who would say it's their top ten? All the guys raise their hand. Yeah. It's, it's pretty gory. Um, my wife wouldn't like it. Have you even seen it? You haven't even seen it? You have seen it? You didn't like it, huh? There's a deleted scene 
Um, there's a deleted scene in The Gladiator that is, and some of you may know this because you're, you're nerds like me, but there's a deleted scene in The Gladiator that uh, is about Christians. It's like under the second deleted scenes. And it's a deleted scene of this, I think it's a father and a mother, maybe not a mother, a father and a little boy are brought out into the arena, tied to a pole, and then lions are released. They don't show any of the graphic goriness, but lions are released, and it's a pretty somber, sad scene. And, and it's Christians being killed in the Colosseums, along with the gladiators, along with all of the, the, the lions and tigers and bears. Uh, my, But the persecuted church, to bring back some seriousness in this, the persecuted church under the Roman Empire, uh, under the first church, Let's back up just a second. Under the first church, there was persecution, but that persecution was mainly from the Jews, the Jewish people that didn't like the Christians, uh, the, the new followers of the way. And so it was always the Jews. And this is how Jesus was killed. The Jews, the synagogue leaders, the high priests, the Pharisees, go to the Romans and say, can you kill Jesus for us? He's claiming to be king. Can you kill Jesus? We don't have the power to kill. So that's the first church. The persecuted church is under the Roman Empire. This is when... Um, Christians would be called out in front of everyone because on Sundays they would worship the sun god. And if you didn't worship the sun god, the sun god is also the emperor of Rome. And so if you didn't worship the emperor of Rome, called the sun god, the soul of Victus, if you didn't worship him and burn incense to him, then you were charged with treason. You were charged with not um, obeying your leaders. And so because of that reason, because of treason of the Roman Empire, Christians were killed in mass numbers. I mean, if you think about all of the apostles, I think all, all but John, uh, John the Beloved, but he was, in, he was in Patmos as part of punishment. All of the other uh, apostles were killed in a brutal way. We think that Peter was uh, crucified upside down by the Roman government. Uh, we think that Paul was thrown into a coliseum with tigers. Uh, that's based on tradition. But we think that all of the apostles died because they were persecuted under the Roman Empire. And so that's the age of the persecuted church. Number four, the imp- let me spell, I'll spell imperial wrong. No, I'll just say, um, yeah, imperial, let's, let's call it the imperial church. The imperial church, number four. This is when a dude who is the Roman emperor, he's, he's about to do a big battle, and he sees a vision in the sky of a cross, and so he accepts Jesus into his heart and then wins the battle. And then this Roman emperor changes the whole empire to Christianity. Does anybody know his name? Everybody knows it. You guys are all nerds, just like me, huh? Constantine, the great emperor Constantine, becomes a Christian. And all over the entire Roman civilization, all of Rome becomes Christian. It becomes legalized. So think about it. In your lifetime, if you were living here, and you, you were hanging out with Paul, maybe you saw Paul, Paul die in a brutal fashion. Maybe you saw some of your friends that go to your church die as, as part of persecution. A couple of years later, the whole Roman Empire accepts Christianity. And that really could have happened over your lifetime. It would have been a pretty radical change, don't you think? And so some people, during this time, the imperial church, that's what it's all about. The Roman Empire accepts Christianity there was a lot of backlash, and I'm going to put it as a sub-point. Um, and there was a lot of uh, monks and nuns during this time. Because under the persecuted church, there was all these people that said, being a Christian is about suffering. 
Being a Christian is about proclaiming the name of Jesus even if you're going to die. It doesn't matter. You need to proclaim Jesus, hold true to what you believe, even if that means you're going to be killed by a lion in, the, in an arena being made fun of everyone that's watching you. And so there was these, uh, there was these monks and nuns during the, the imperial church that said, Christianity is all about suffering. We need to go out and suffer and be a part and, and, and flow up the stream of culture and to go against culture and say Christianity is about not about flowing with culture and being, oh, yeah, everybody's a Christian in the Roman Empire, but flowing against that and saying a true Christian will suffer for Christ. A true Christian is called apart from the Roman Empire. So there was all these monks and nuns that uh, took, took time and went into the desert or whatnot and uh, were monks and nuns. One of my favorite guys is called Simon Stylites. He's a, just a pretty random character in church history. You'll see why. But he um, didn't go out into the desert. Instead, he constructed a 50-foot pole. 50 feet, that's pretty big, right? And at the top of that pole was, was a little platform. And on that platform, he lived for 37 years. No joke. He lived up there because he was called to be a part. As, as a Christian, he was called a part. And he believed that that's what God was calling him to do. And it's kind of cool. He did have some ministry a part of that because... People, I mean, if someone did that today, if someone had been living 37 years on a pole, you might want to go see him. It'd be like, you know, going to see uh, the Grand Canyon or something. Let's go see the guy that lives on, a, lives on the pole. And so you'd go, and then he'd preach. Every day he would preach. But it's just weird. Don't you think it's a little weird? All these random, and he's probably one of the weirdest, people were called apart in the imperial church because it's kind of like this. It's kind of like in America. You know, we could kind of say, it's not so much true anymore, but you could kind of say, oh, all of America is Christian. Right? I mean, some people say that. All, all Americans, all, they're all Christian. But us, as real worshipers of Jesus, look at all of America and say, no, we're called apart. We're, all, of, all of America isn't Christians like we're Christians. Christian means to be called apart. Christian means to be holy. Christian means to give up some of your life in order to follow Jesus. And that's kind of what they thought. All right, number five. It's the medieval ages or the middle age middle ages church and this started i'm going to give you the date i didn't give you the dates on any of these other ones uh the imperial church started in 311 a.d that's when constantine decided to be a christian just in case you were wondering uh, about time periods uh the middle ages kind of starts with 476 yeah 476 and that's the fall of rome that's when Rome fell, and we enter into a period in church history of about a thousand years. I mean, all these other time periods so far have been like 200 years max. This, the Middle Age church, Middle Ages church, Medieval Ages, Dark Ages, is about a thousand years. And that term, Dark Ages, <clears throat> or Middle Ages, isn't a term that's supposed to be a compliment. We got 15 minutes, right? Yeah, we're doing good. The Middle Ages church, that's a th- it's the term Middle Ages is not supposed to be a compliment. It's supposed to be the time period in the middle between the sweet, the glorious, the Roman emperor, empire, and the sweet and glorious Renaissance and Reformation. The Middle Ages is a time period. It's also called the Dark Ages. When there was lots of people, just uh, lots of people were illiterate. Lots of people were pretty much just slaves. They were serfs or servants. And they, they lived in the feudal system where, there, where every one of us, but maybe one, 
might be a knight. You know, we talk about the knights in shining armor, but most of us would all be slaves to our land. We wouldn't even own the land. We'd be harvesting wheat for the king and for the kingdom, and he would provide us some protection against some bad guys. But that's kind of how it was. And for a thousand years, the, the church grew up um, under the Middle Ages all over Europe. So the fall of the Roman Empire, the spread of Christianity all through Europe, the Germans, the Huns, the Attila, that guy is all part of this picture. Um, uh, the, the Visigoths were all in Europe. They all became Christian, and Christianity spread through Europe over this thousand years. Would you like to know a piece of information that might blow your mind? If you were a Christian living in the Middle Ages, you were Roman Catholic. Without, with extremely rare, um, extremely rare uh, exceptions to that rule, every single person in the Middle Ages in Europe, if you were a Christian, which everybody was, because was, if you weren't, then you could have been killed for heresy. If you were a Christian, you were Catholic. That's mind-blowing to think about, right? Because you're like, well, what about the Baptists? What about the Lutherans? What about the Charismatics? What about the Seventh-day Adventists? They're all much later. They're all during the Protestant Reformation. Does that blow your mind? It kind of blew, blew my mind the first time I got my hands, my mind around this idea that, wow, our Christian church history is all about Catholics. And, and our church history, as far as Protestants, only goes back to about the 1500s. And then before that, it was all Catholics. Crazy, don't you think? It's crazy. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. That's why you're being so quiet. Number six. Wait, let's finish up Middle Ages. Middle Ages church, uh, one of the bad things that really happened then was the bubonic plague. Kind of a bad time. Your skin kind of turns bluish. You die within four days. Uh, killed about one-third of the population. Pretty bad days. Uh, the Crusades, also pretty bad days. Thousands upon thousands of people just joined up. Didn't really be a part of like a real army, but they just went, headed down to Jerusalem to fight, to win Jerusalem for Christianity. They didn't win it. I mean, Jerusalem is in the heart of, uh, of Israel that belongs, you know, kind of Jewish nation now, but it was an uh, Islam nation uh, for the longest time. And so those are kind of bad times. Number six, to keep rolling here, the Protestant Reformation, my favorite time in church history. The Protestant Reformation. Since everybody was Catholic in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church was kind of getting into some bad things. And even now, even today, they'll say, yeah, that was a bad deal. That wasn't right of us. What they were doing was if you sinned and wanted forgiveness, you could buy a piece of paper. You know what that piece of paper was called? Yeah, it was called, yeah you guys are so smart. It was called an indulgence. You could go and get this letter signed from the Pope, I think by the Pope himself, I don't know, maybe just a bishop, that said that you're absolved from sin. And you had to pay a lot of money to get that piece of paper. Just like, let's say you, you, you sin and, uh, and you want to get forgiven. You could go to a priest, ask for forgiveness, but then he would say, okay, now go buy an indulgence to seal the deal. That's kind of a bad, that's kind of manipulating people, don't you think? If we started doing that, would it be manipulation? Yeah, it'd be a bad, <laughs> it'd be a bad deal. It'd probably make the newspapers again. No big deal. All right, Protestant Reformation. This is when my homeboy in 1517, on October 31st, 1517, nails 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. What's his name? Martin Luther. Not to be confused with Martin Luther King or Martin Luther King Jr. 
but his name is Martin Luther. A German dude who says that the Catholic Church is doing some bad things. We need to start another division. We need to reform the Catholic Church. And you know that Lutheranism, like if you're a Lutheran, you kind of come from the history of Martin Luther, the, one of the first Protestant Reformations. That's why we're called Protestants. Every, if, we're, if we're members of New Life Church, we're Protestants. We're protesting the Catholic Church because that's where our history comes from. That's where we started from. All right, number seven. Um, when was Jamestown? Do you know? Founding of America? 1607. Of course you know that. We're all nerds in here. It's okay. Jamestown. When, what was that? That was the founding of America and the spread of Christianity to the Americas. People coming for religious freedoms and getting them and then, and then kind of forming little cliques of certain denominations and then not giving freedoms to other people. Isn't that kind of interesting? Have you ever thought about that? Like they came over from Europe to get religious freedoms, but then they joined up with a bunch of Baptists and they're like, oh yeah, we're Baptists. We have religious freedoms. Let's kill any other, anybody else like the Quakers or the, the Presbyterians. Kind of weird, don't you think? It's like, hello, shouldn't you give religious freedom since you came for religious freedoms? Anyways, um, that's number seven. Let's fly through the rest of these. Number eight, I'm going to call uh, the first and second great awakenings. Uh, this is when massive numbers of people come to know Jesus and turn their lives around all over the colonies. People had kind of uh, fell you know, away from church. But the first and second Great Awakening brought everybody back all into Jesus. It's kind of cool. And lots of people today are playing, praying for a third Great Awakening that might happen in 2008. Wouldn't that be sweet? I mean, we're talking about, million, we're talking about huge percentages of the population coming to, I mean, churches would just explode. Sunday school would be like 900 people, just random people would be coming in. Like, oh, I love Jesus. I just got saved. Somebody just preached to me. That would be uh, a Great Awakening. Some people are praying for that. I am too. It's kind of cool. Number nine, um, we got time, we got time, Civil War. And we talked about this. I think the last time we talked about church history was about the Civil War. We talked about how the United States split right down the middle, top to bottom, north to south, over the issue of slavery. Lots of churches split over that time period, and that was, that was just last month. We talked about that. Uh, number 10, running out of space. There's just two more, though. Number 10, fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. That's what that, yeah, you can't even read it anyway. So number 10, number 9 says civil war. This is so bad. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I apologize for my laziness and lack of good handwriting. <clears throat> number 9 says civil war. Number 10 says fundamentalism. This is something that we're going to talk about this month, the rise of fundamentalism. Let's say like in the 1950s and the 60s, uh, even maybe a little before that, when there a distinction need to be made between some denominations or some groups of people that were getting very liberal in their thinking. And so mainline Christianity wanted to summarize things and say, you know what, we're part of, uh, we're fundamental Christians. We, are part, we have fundamental things that we believe in, and you liberals don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in the Bible. We're not Christians in the same way. There needs to be a distinction drawn. And so we'll talk about the fundamentalist movement. Um, also in here, this month I'm very excited. I think in probably in three Sundays we'll take a whole class and talk about history in America of the charismatic movement. Won't that be sweet? Like the Azusa Street Revival and uh, like it started, kind of started in L.A. and Kansas City. We'll talk about all that cool stuff. The history of the charismatic movement. Sound like fun? Don't want to miss three weeks from now. 
Um, we'll talk about that. Uh, let's see. And then I guess number 11 is, is something that um, I kind of ran out of time, you know, kind of run out of time sometimes when you get excited and start talking about stuff. But number 11 is post-modernity. I'm not even going to write it because I don't have room. Number 11 is post-modernity. And that one's in your notes. That one's right here. <coughs> Excuse me. Dying. Good thing I got water. Post-modernity. That's number 11. We're going to talk about this just a little bit because we've got uh, five minutes. And then uh, next, next week we'll talk about what it is to be postmodern. Now, if you look at your, your cover of your millet, there seems to be a very strange, weird-looking building. Does anyone know what that building is? What? It's not. It's no. It's it's actually uh, in L.A. It's it's like the Opera House. It's called the. It's I think Disney sponsored it. Yeah, the Disney Opera House thing. And it's it's supposed to be a postmodern building, a building that just has uh, lots of random things going on inside of it. There's no one structural thing that you could say. Oh, that building is square. No, there's just too many random uh, things coming off here and there. And uh, someone joked that uh, as we talk more about post-modernity, let me give you a definition first. Um, I'll, I'll give you this definition next week as well. But post-modernity is largely influenced by the disillusionment introduced by the First and Second World War. Just just listen. I don't know that you could write it all down. Or uh, you could come up later. I'd give it to you. Postmodernism, we'll talk about this next time as well. Postmodernism tends to refer to a cultural, intellectual, or artistic state lacking in a clear hierarchy of organization principles. It embodies, that means it likes, extreme complexity, contradiction, ambiguity, diversity, and interconnectedness. That's postmodernity. Every single one of us living in here, if we're in our 20s-ish or maybe in our 30s-ish, or uh, out of high school-ish, like under 20-ish, meaning everyone in here. Um, if, if you're part, probably part of a philosophical idea called post-modernity, there was modernity, modernism before that, and then post-modernity. Sometime around the 1950s, the culture started going, getting into more post-modern things. And what it means is that there's no foundation for the, meaning that we could, say, we could say there's no such thing as an absolute truth. If you're very postmodern in your thinking, you would say there's no such thing as an absolute truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. That's very anti-Christian because Christians, every one of us that's, that calls Jesus our God, would say Jesus is the way. He is the truth. And that's true. And other religions are sadly wrong. That there is things that are absolutely true no matter what. And so to, get, to say all that, to get back to this building, that's a, a random building with just lines and weird shapes all about it. And someone joked, I think it was Ravi Zacharias, joked about this building. You guys know Ravi? He, he's a really cool a Christian apologetist, meaning he gives answers and reasons behind what we believe. He kind of joked that this building was postmodern. But then he, ha- he asked the question, but I don't think they did the same thing with the foundation. Think about it. There's not like random chunks of concrete in the ground or else the building would fall over in five to ten years. The foundation still has to be. And so he joked about that. So that's what that picture is. Um, Let's pray, shall we?